This is episode 68 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks for joining me. While we like the idea that we can simply think ourselves into certain beliefs and instincts, the truth of the matter is that our personality is partially determined by our evolutionary history. There might be some things lurking down there that we don't want to address, but we can't ignore them either. Todd Cashton joins me today to jam about what he calls the basement of your personality and why it matters. If you're looking for change, maybe it's time to look in the basement of your personality. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash giant. Hey, Creative Giants, I'm pumped to have Todd join me again today for the Creative Giant Show. Dr. Todd Cashton is a world-recognized authority on well-being, strengths, social relationships, stress, and anxiety. He has published more than 150 scholarly articles and is the author of Curious, Discover the Missing Ingredient to a Fulfilling Life, and co-author of the new book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. Todd is Professor of Psychology and Senior Scientist at the Center of Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University. His research has been featured in several media outlets, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. He's a twin and has twin daughters with plans to rapidly populate the world with great conversationalists. He says the things other people want to, but are afraid to. Todd, thanks so much for joining me again on the show today. You you were there with me, episode 10. I'm excited about the topic we're talking about today because I am... I'm really interested in a lot of the conversations we have about cross-generational preferences and cross-national preferences and this idea that um, you can transfer values from culture to culture and and think that there's some type of parity there. And, you know, you've been doing a lot of work and fascinated about this too. So thanks for joining me today. I say yes to you everywhere. So it's always my pleasure to be here with you. And Todd and I are trying to figure out how we're going to get on the show, Hamilton. So if any of you listening have a, have a tip that, that's not require us waiting nine months and paying two, two grand, we would love to hear about that. Okay, just saying. All righty. So, Todd, you've been in the field exploring some of these issues. What, what's the rub for you? Like, where have you noticed, like, this popular idea that's not bearing out in either your research or your collaborations like, with your different teams? 
Well, so for, for those of your listeners that don't realize that I am an unknown scientist working in the trenches at a university, second tier university, um, most of my work's on well-being. Most of my work is on personality strengths that enable us to be more engaged, more satisfied, more productive, have healthier lives, whether it's inside of work and outside of work. Um, and I've been involved in this thing called positive psychology since the start in 1998. Um, just riffing right off of what you just asked me I, right now. I mean, every week there's a new book on happiness, particularly happiness tied to the workplace. There's thousands of websites and apps for increasing your gratitude and increasing your amount of positive emotions. And, and all of this is, is a really great trend just to have people talking about their feelings and be willingness to be vulnerable so they could bring their unique offering of strengths, abilities, and personal vantage point into the workplace. I think where I come from is I'm always looking at if everyone is, is standing in line here and everyone's putting this issue on the front cover of magazines and books, what are people missing? And so I do have that tendency to kind of be like a, a little bit lurking for the holes. And, and one thing that's really been interesting to me of lately is how little people think about the origins or the, the, the starting points for how do you start to develop a personality where you have more compassion, more, more, more better moral decision-making, um, more positive emotions, better perspective-taking. And part of those origins stems from evolutionary psychology. And I think that people ignore this topic thinking that it's not relevant to the business world, it's not relevant to their relationships or their well-being. And I think there's, there's really some cool, surprising findings that I'd love to share with you and, and your listeners. So, so I'm going to interrupt. Yes, we're going to go in there. So, um, as, a, as I mentioned in the bio, um, Todd is the co-author of The Upside of Your Dark Side and also Curious. And he mentioned that he's, you know, an unknown professor. Totally not true. That's him being humble. Um, and what I liked about, especially The Upside of Your Dark Side, but also Curious, is exactly as Todd mentioned. Like when everybody is saying this is the, this is the pedagogical norm right now, this is, the, this is what we're talking about, Todd's always like, but what about this other thing over here that we're not talking about? So, um, why do so? Let's pause. Why do we avoid the, that the um, evolutionary psychology background that's that's really um, underlying a lot of this um, character and formative development? Why? I mean, you, you mentioned that we ignore it, but why do we do that? But I think there's a couple of reasons. One is we think it's for intellectuals, so people that are much smarter than me, right? This is for deep philosophers. This is for when you have in in really, you know, bullish times that we can, we can actually sit back with a glass of whiskey and think about kind of like, well, how well, why is it that when we meditate on death, we end up being more aggressive towards people that don't think like us or don't look like us of a different race, a different sexual orientation or a foreigner. And yet if we don't contemplate death, we tend to be more friendly and more hospitable as, a, as actually a strength and a virtue. Um, when we, so we don't, we tend to, I think people like to focus on what's the actual behavior right now, thinking of like, all right, well, you can decide to be friendlier. You can decide to be less hostile towards people that are more religious if you're an atheist or more atheist if you end up being religious. We can just change your behavior. And I think what people forget is we have deep-seated millions of years of behavioral programming over, you know, a good dozens, dozens of generations that have led to 
um, meta programming that we can't override that easily. And I think people underestimate that part of the reason it's hard to change our behavior and change other people's behavior is because there's a, there's a strong biologically driven reason why we act certain ways. If we don't understand that, then we get, we don't often give people the benefit of the doubt and it's hard to make inroads. Yeah, I was watching Vanessa Van Edwards, um, something on her website, and she's from the um, Science of People, and she does a lot with um, behavioral cues that we give when we talk, right? And it's fascinating when you go into behavioral cues, because eyebrow, eyebrow raises and taking up space and doing the steeple, you know, where you're raising, like, those are all very primed cues in us that signal different things at a subconscious level. And once you start knowing about that, like, I see, I've seen multiple reactions from people. The first reaction is that, like, no, they're better than that. Like they don't actually have those reactions when these very basic things start happening. And then the second is also like, ah, I don't know if I want to use those different types of things once you know about them. Right. And the reason I'm pulling that in Todd is because I agree. I think there's this deep rooted thing that like we are these mental creatures that are separate from our physical bodies, right? And all of this stuff, like that's what animals do, right? Um, Pavlovian stuff, not us, right? Not us. We don't, we don't respond to this meta programming and, you know, millions of years of evolution, right? Well, I, I always think, I always describe this as this is the basement of your personality. And it, it's, it's one of these human universals. Let me, let me tell you one of the kind of cooler findings I was just talking about to my mm -hmm. students today, which was this idea, and, and you described it well, which is, the scariest people on the planet are not the people that are racist and sexist. They're the people that say, I don't see race. I don't, I don't see sexual sex differences. These are the ones, you, these are the police officers you need to worry about. These are your neighbors that you have to worry about. These are the teachers you have to worry about. And, and I'll tell you this really interesting finding, which is we have this tendency that if we see a large, so imagine going to a, a Knicks game in Madison Square Garden in New York City, and, and the entire audience is of a different race than you. And if you're, if you just walk into that stadium and you see, and if you're white like me and you see a, a bunch of black people filling the entire stadium, 15,000 people, you immediately do not see any differences. That's just a visual cue. The cue is your body responds and saying, there's a lot of people that don't look like me and your heartbeat goes up about 10 beats per minute. And it's just, it's a natural response. It's not racism. It's not prejudice. It's a recognition that you are, it's like Sesame Street. Which one of these people is not like the other people? We have this biological response. Um, here's what's interesting. So if you see a bunch of white people, when I walk into that stadium, I can see all the differences. I can see, oh, there's a, there's a guy with an obloid head over there. That guy's got a 70s porn star mustache over there. That guy like, has like, an amazing body, and he looks like he's 62 years old. Like, how the heck do I get, tra how do I get a trapezius muscle that looks like that? I can see that in the crowd. Now, as soon as it's dark outside, let's say the game goes into you know, triple overtime, and I walk outside, and now it's New York City at 12, at 12 midnight, and it's dark out. When I see a group of black people walking towards me, what happens is I notice all of the differences. I notice that this person has his arm hanging a little bit, little bit left of center so that his left arm is dragging a little bit compared to his right arm. That person has a much thicker neck compared to that person. And if I see a bunch of white people at night, ends up, I don't see any differences. This is just a big mess. It's, it's like close encounters of the third kind when the spaceship comes down, I'm blinded by white light. When we're in, in the dark, it cues us where there's, 
Now there's potential danger and I don't know, I have less information available to you. Without even being consciously aware, it flips. All of a sudden, now people that aren't like me, I see all of their differences. And when it's light, I see when people aren't like me, I don't see any differences. They just all look the same. And you can't explain that by your thoughts about race. And you can't explain that about your history of being exposed to people of different race. It can only be understood by understanding that we were wired to, to be in a group that was no more than 50 to 150 people. Now we are, especially if you live in an urban area, have way too many mugs in your face. And we are designed such that when there is a, a, a signal of danger, such as being in the dark, our minds trick us or such that it shuts down certain circuitry. So we are focused on, I want to attune to people's voice. Like, is it high pitched? Is it low pitched? As I see that they're walking towards me, like as their direct eye contact, are they looking away from me? And I'm hyper-focused on people that don't look like me in terms of race. And that's something that we all have within us. And I think if we would miss that, if we didn't pay attention to evolutionary science. So what do we do with that? I mean, because I think there's an easy way and I, I can hear listeners saying, well, I mean, that's just, just, that's just structural racism. That's just all that type of whatnot. But what we're saying it's, it's actually well belong that, right? It, it, so I would probably say it's not that it's a white black thing. It might be that if it were, a, 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 it would be a group of like stadium, a stadium full of Asians. I would be like, Whoa, this is weird. Like, what am I doing here? Right. Um, so I, it's not about a particular racial preference. It's about in-group, out-group behavior and what that looks like, right? Is that more correct? Is that no, 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 absolutely. And, I, and I, I, should, I should have probably prefaced that I purposely choose hot-button examples so that this is memorable, right? People are, are going to have a strong emotional reaction to that. Um, you know, I mean, like there's like just to give before I go into kind of what would we do with this, there, there's, there's another finding, which is the idea of if – Women who are in their third trimester, all of a sudden they show a massive level of xenophobia. And what xenophobia is, is I don't like foreigners and I have prejudice towards them. Now, when they're not pregnant, these same women are compassionate, they're friendly, they're kind, they're lovable, um, they are generous, uh, good perspective taking skills. Third trimester kicks in, those hormones kick in, and you're not worried about making new friends, and you're not worried about whether or not you are likable. Your body has now hijacked your brain in some way such that you're hyper-focused on not being exposed to any type of pathogen that could bother the baby. And so you become something that most pregnant women aren't consciously aware of, which is you are terrified of disease. You go into disease avoidance mode. And one of the best markers of someone carrying a disease is someone's a foreigner. Someone doesn't, someone doesn't look like you. Someone, someone doesn't speak like you in terms of their language. And so we have this automatic response that happens there. And so understand. So the first benefit of evolutionary psych is a real understanding of who we are. If we want to make humans to be the most compassionate, helpful, productive, creative, um, you know, I think uh, valuable members of society, we have to understand who we are before we can make changes. So we need to know that there are certain conditions that we actually change and we switch off from being a compassionate person to being an assertive person to being an aggressive person and actually being a little bit hostile, not being a hostile person, 
But during this time frame, I'm going to be a little bit more hostile. That's amazing because, you know, it seems like we have, on the one hand, we have this evolutionary psych of just who we are at that level, right, in our genes. And then we also have um, neurology and neuroscience is telling us who we are on the other side, right, that I think both can inform positive psychology and most, you know, um, most research around success mindsets and things like that. It says we have these, we have these constraints, really, right? Um, we have the strength of being in the body. And we also have a constraint of what our brains can actually process. Important, important stuff. What do we do about it? I, I like that you mentioned the neck down. That's the second time you mentioned the body. And that's, that's another part of this, which is really interesting. And it just, I'll, I'll give your listeners a homework assignment, which some of them will do. And some of them will say, I don't listen to podcasts to get homework assignments, which is have a difficult conversation with your roommate. Now your roommate could be your romantic partner or lover, or it could be some strange character who happens to have some money that you barely even know. Have that difficult conversation while you're standing on one leg the entire time. And what you'll find is, is that when you are physically uncomfortable and unbalanced, it actually sets up your, your mind, your thoughts and your emotions to be emotionally unbalanced and unsteady such that you're more uncomfortable, the conversation is more stilted, you're, you're more guarded, you're more defensive, and you're less likely to agree and with the terms of a conflict of the other party. And it's not because you're disagreeable. It's not because you're hostile. It's because we often think that everything comes neck down. Mm-hmm. Is that if my attitudes and thoughts about a person will affect whether or not I'm forgiving and whether I'm generous in a conf- conflict situation. What ends up being that if your body feels unbalanced, is actually physically unbalanced, we interpret that mentally as, oh, I am completely unbalanced emotionally. I'm like a little bit unhinged from this situation. It's not completely, it's like, it's like tilting a pinball machine where it's like a 10% tilt where you're a little bit less steady, a little bit less composed and a little bit less tranquil. And that's usually the difference. Five to 10% drops are usually the difference between you winning or losing a competition. And it's not, it's many times we are in competition with people. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to pull this up real quick because um, for those not really used to military culture, there are several stances that are that that are really common across many cultures around the world. There's the attention stance where you have both feet together and you're standing straight up and it's a very uncomfortable, stiff position. After that, though, there's a whole medley of positions where it's parade rest at ease, so on and so forth, where you're actually in what would be a tree pose where you have your legs that are out kind of in a triangle base. And, you know, what I was thinking about when you were talking about that is that's so ingrained in the culture because it's like, relax. Well, what do they tell you to do? Get stable, get balanced, right? Have that pose. Don't have this really tippy toppy thing where you can't, where you can't move. Similarly, um, when I was going through really um, getting my chops with public speaking and things like that, I figured out that I had certain poses that would put me off balance, right? And so it's kind of fidgety and kind of twitchy. And I realized that same tree position is a really good one to speak from because it grounds you, you're confident and you can speak as a confident thing. So again, this is another way that we can take what he's talking about and apply it to real world situations. If you're in an uncomfortable situation, like maybe try standing with your legs a little bit further apart. So you feel solid. <laughs> and you can, and you can see it. So the inverse of military culture is um, watching someone undisciplined who's on the prowl for for finding a romantic partner if you if you go to a bar and you 
you can see the people that are the most slanted and have the worst posture and are leaning towards one side are usually the people that have the most romantic interests is, is basically is their discomfort comes out physically. And, and immediately, immediately you will see a change in their body posture in terms of they'll lean toward one side. They'll put their arm against the bar. They'll have their leg up against the wall to steady themselves. In some ways, like intuitively know if we steady ourselves in some way that we can gain some level of comfort. But you kind of hit on like an important hack, which is if you think of oh, physically, if I can ground myself completely, then I'm centered and then I can kind of focus on my prize of the evening, which is I want to have this conversation. I want to connect with this person. I'd like to learn some things about this person. I want to kind of sell why I'm, I'm the person to go home with this evening. I mean, this is, it's, it's so simple that I think a lot of people overlook this. And I think if you watch a bunch of Ted talks, you can see just, more, I mean, far too many of them when I, I watch them, they, they put one foot over the other one and they're kind of leaning to one side and they're moving around the stage like they're a prowling Black Panther and you just kind of wonder yourself, like, why wouldn't you just steady yourself so people can focus on the message? And so it's, these are easy things to ignore and they're easy things that can actually improve your life quite a bit. Here you're talking about performance. So what else have you been studying that's just really counterintuitive ways? It's really um, the ways in which we're wired at the evolutionary psych level that are coming up and really tripping us up in other areas. Well, one, one thing that's been interesting to me is cultures. And I mean, I live in a world of scientists, writers, and speakers who are obsessed with positivity. The idea of feeling positive emotions, being cheerful, smiling. And it's not that I'm a curmudgeon. I'm not the guy who's going to steal the, the kickball that goes over my fence and never give it to the kids again. Um, I just believe that being emotionally agile always trumps positivity. Is that? And one of the things that's interested me is when you get outside of the United States and you look at other cultures, which is how do they respond to the cheerful optimism that's being pushed really heavily in people's personal lives, their relationships, and in the workplace, which I think is is a little bit, um, I'd have to say, uh, oppressive to some degree. And if and what you find is some interesting things. I mean, you know, what we found with some colleagues is that if you look at people in Japan versus the United States, you find that people in Japan are less find it to be superficial and a little bit foolish to be cheerful when you first meet somebody because you're just starting to get to know someone. There's no information available yet. And you build up to allowing yourself to someone to see you unfiltered. And that, that's a, that's a cultural thing. It's, it's not something that's good or bad. It's just different than the United States. Now here's the, the benefits of them not being in this oppressive, positive culture. When people get rejected, in everyday life. So we all do, you know, you, you know, you end up you paying for lunch and nobody thanks you or taps you on the back, just kind of walks away from you as if nothing ever happened. Or, you know, you write a nice email telling someone like you had like a really great time with them and they never write back to you. And you pass someone in the hallway at work and say hello. And they look you right in the face. They don't say anything or even acknowledge your existence. I mean, we experience these little moments of rejection all the time. And we naturally make attributions that they're evil and there's something wrong with us. And that's just how our, our monkey brain works. Mm -hmm. What you find in Japan is when they get rejected or attacked by somebody else, it only takes one positive experience to override that. So they're back to equanimity. So they just need one person to be nice, one waiter, 
one conversation where they get complimented, boom, they're back. And in the United States, it takes two to three times as many good things to override that one negative experience. And so this is important here. I mean, if you think about the question, which would you prefer to be smiling more often and cheerful during the day or being more more resilient where I'm able to bounce back to my full capacities two to three times quicker on, a, on an everyday basis? And if you put those two as a 40-year-old man up against each other, I think I would do the bounce back quicker because I like having all my mental faculties and I like being fully present when I'm talking to people. And I like to be, you know, when I'm watching a movie, I want to be watching a movie, not having a rewinding all the things that happened during my day. I want to be able to bounce back and and I, I can take the smiles and the laughter as they come and go for the course of the day. So it's, I think it's a preference thing. I think what it's, what I would end with is to think about like, what is it that you want? Culture's pushing you to choose cheerfulness and happiness in most moments. But if you can pull back and ask yourself, like what would you can't, you can't have them all and you have to prioritize. What do you prefer? It's like the Todd Henry has this great comment, which is that um, we all want to be liked and we all want to be effective at work and you can have both, but you have to prioritize one. And I think most people don't. And so they, just err on trying obsessing over being light. How many thumbs ups did I get on Facebook and how many people agreed with me during this meeting when I think if you had to really think about it, a lot of those people that choose likability would actually like to be effective and then be respected and develop relationships over the course of them learning who they are. What you're bringing up for me is, you know, oftentimes when I talk about what's keeping us from doing our best work, is what I call OPP and not from the naughty by nature song, but you know, other people's problems, other people's priorities, right? And what it is, is we spend so much time responding to other people's problems and priorities because we essentially want to be liked by them. That that time displaces time that we can be working on our own stuff. And this is a problem that a lot of people have, not Todd, because he's amazing, but I have this problem, right? Um, And so it's one of those things, I like that you mentioned it, between you can be liked or you can be effective or productive, and sometimes you have to prioritize them, right? And so just on that, if if you're thinking about, you know, why you're not doing your best work, just really think about, like, maybe some of the OPP that you're taking on and seeing what you can do to maybe push being effective for you or maybe push doing what, what really worked like the work that needs to be done for you, for those around you, for the world, which may not be the work that everybody else wants you to do right here, right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think most of my work that I focus on is how do we deal with the friction of everyday life such that in those moments when we feel tense because we're running up against someone else who disagrees with us or we're facing roadblocks of things that are making us experience anger or righteous indignation. When we have these moments, what, what is it that allows us to be tolerant of that distress, accepting of that distress, or even what I would call like, like the highest level is to be able to harness that distress to make us more effective. And I think you hit something really hard, which is that, when you're when you're when your core value is to be light, you're not going to be able to deal with the friction of the world. Um, it's the when you experience the adversity of having kids that don't that don't listen to you, 
having a romantic partner that's on the same page with you, having coworkers that haven't been persuaded that the ideas that you have are where we should be heading right now. If the goal is to be light, let's reverse all those situations. Well, one is you give in to your kids, and now all of a sudden you're giving them Wendy's and Twizzlers, and they're watching R-rated movies, and you're kind of screwing them up. I mean, in some I'm imagine my kids are nine, so you in that situation, it's a recipe for a really bad long-term situation because you give in once, now you've just created, you've now have ho- one hostage negotiation situation means yep. there are more that are coming along, which is one of the one of my rules in my my research laboratory is. Um, you you never get you never get to to have hostage negotiations because there's no blackmailing because once I say yes then all of a sudden the relationship has now been skewed for the long haul and when you're not on the same page as a romantic partner if the goal is to be light what happens is you don't express your opinions and one of the one of the beauties of of a monogamous relationship and I realize it's not for everybody the beauties of a monogamous relationship is you can fight and have your B game and your C game and you can fight and you can just say like, I can't express myself clearly for some reason today, but I'm telling you, this is not something I'm comfortable with. Um, maybe I'll express this well tomorrow, you know, and some, and it could be the simplest thing. It could be hanging out with neighbors and some, for some reason, they remind you of kids that bullied you when you were younger and you just don't they just you just don't get along with them because they bring back all those memories it's not their fault but they are what they are i mean we have these attachments that come with us and it work if if people don't believe that your ideas are the right place right now if the goal is to be light you fold and the fact is is in the beginning of creativity which i know we want to go in this conversation of creativity is creativity is about seeing things from a perspective that other people haven't seen yet, haven't looked at yet. And what that means in the beginning, you're the outlier and you don't fit in and you're trying to topple the status quo and people don't want you around because they're all in, in kumbaya loving agreement mode. And all of a sudden you come in as the counterpoint. If you want to be light, that's the end of creativity. Part of creativity is accepting the distress that comes from showing your uniqueness with the hope that, you have enough evidence that you've collected, enough reading, enough um, synthesizing that you believe this is worth investing in because the thing that makes you the disruptor and the outlier and the outcast now is exactly the uniqueness they're going to be celebrating and having parties for later. And this is the story of every creator. But here's the, the key aspect is you have to be willing to be disliked in the moment or moments. Yeah, I often say that, you, you know, to really be a successful creative person, you have to be functionally delusional, right? And here's why. You have to see the world a certain way and think that you're not the crazy one, right? Um, whatever that is, you have to see the world and all the businesses that fail if you're an entrepreneur. And, and there are quite a lot and think, I'm going to be the one that's going to make it, right? You got to walk into the room where everybody sees the picture one way and say, you know what? I think it's actually this way and believe like that you're actually right. And that's where the delusion, like you gotta be functional, but you also have to have that bit of just delusional craziness about you, right? To make it work. You just do. This, this, is, this is the beauty of um, Joshua Shank talking about creativity, the idea of having the pairings, right? Having, you know, John Lennon's Paul McCartney and, you know, um, 
Daniel Kahneman, Scott Tversky. I mean, to have your compadre and having like your your wise counsel, but particularly like your part, like the partner that's going to be with you and absorb some of the tension with you. And so you guys can gossip and complain and whine and bitch and ruminate together. And it's all exactly functional. The delusion's functional. The ruminating is functional. The gossip is functional. Every all those behaviors that we view as, and that's not for mature wise adults these things are because they allow you to stay the course when you're disagreeing with everyone else i mean one of my favorite studies was of entrepreneurs about fifteen thousand entrepreneurs and they looked at them in all these different personality dimensions and what almost everyone does is they look at entrepreneurs versus other people in business or other adult workers and they just see who's more agreeable, who's more confrontational, um, who ends up being uh, more open to experiences, who has more liberal, who has more liberal political views. What people don't look at is what's called nonlinearity, which is maybe it's not linear. And what they found was, was that compared to all other adults, entrepreneurs, they're not that agreeable and they're not that confrontational. They're like right in the middle of the scale, which, and what that, what that captures is this flexibility that they, they bounce back and forth between being very quarrelsome, which is that, listen, I completely disagree with where you're going. That takes, it takes a lot, that friction there. And at other times, which is like, listen, I'm going to agree to disagree because I need us to work together. We're a team. Um, right now is team building. We're in team building mode. We have to have that. So to be able to have both faculties that you can't be character, you can't be boxed or characterized as, you know, a Tibetan monk in terms of your loving kindness, and you can't be, you know, this argumentative, incredible Hulk on the other end. In some ways, you are a complex character that can't be boxed. And in some ways, that's, that's what Steve Jobs is the icon of. It's not, because so if, you, if you read all of the biographies about him, what you find is you hear stories about him being the most warm, sensitive person, really reveling in like building and developing young people's ideas in Apple and in Pixar. And then the other side, you find him completely delusional in terms of fighting with everyone in humanity because he's on like, he's on like a, you know, a renegade, a renegade kind of mission at some points of time. And, and to put those together is he's somewhere in the middle on the dimension of being between being disagreeable to agreeable. And it's, people don't like nuances. So they only paint one way or the other. They don't like nuances. It's, you know, we're schizophrenic in so many ways, Todd, because we um, don't want to be put in a box, but we don't like the shades of gray that come up by not being in the box. It's like, oh, we're all of these things. You know, as you're mentioning, um, Daniel Pink in his book, To Sell Us Human, mentioned that actually the best salespeople aren't the really um, extroverted, you know, in-your-face sales guy, nor are they the people that are hyper-introverted and sit back and listen to everything. They're ambiverts that are in the middle that can go back and forth, right? There's these complex people that have learned um, through conditioning and training and experience how to flip back and forth as, as thing comes up. And the, I think the challenge of that is, um, you know, there's, there's that piece where like, we, we don't want to be in the box, but we also like the, the clarity, like to be in that situation where you have this vast range of emotional responses to a situation in some ways makes every moment much more challenging for you because you don't have just a hammer that you're always going to smash on something or you don't always have that. And it's like, I'm in this situation. I need to make a certain decision about how I'm going to go forward. And I don't necessarily have to follow a script. 
um, or what, you know, American or what philosophers would call existentialism, right? You're in this moment. You've got to make a choice and every choice is precious, you know? I, I like how you describe the, the profile of the creative person. If, if, you, if you look at, and this is where it's, I love, I love collaborating with you because here you are at the, the helm of the business world and you've got your beautiful kind of military background and philosophy background. And I'm here, I'm bringing some of the science. This, the science of, of, create, of creators is you have this profile where it's, it's really liberating profile. Like what is the person, what are the personality traits of a creator? And these are for creative people, people who, two things. One is they are, they have desire, the desire to challenge the status quo. That's the big part of creativity. And then producing the work that is in some way combining things that have never been combined before. I mean, that's creativity in a nutshell for me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's useful. And you find is they're both rebellious as well as incredibly dutiful, right? This, this kind of, this dialectic, they're very playful and they're very serious and somber and they're very, they're very disorganized in terms of like kind of combining and meshing all these ideas while they're daydreaming, while they're in kind of a Korean spa and they're kind of, they're reading books about engineering and, and martial arts and jujitsu and the civil war. And they're reading about, you know, and, and optometry. And all of a sudden they're developing some, something that Google would be interested in. And so they're completely disorganized in terms of where they're going and they're reading and nobody else could follow their path. At the same time, they're very organized where if you were to go on their laptop, you would see, a ton of folders and subfolders and there's a system to the madness that happens there. And you, and you find also that they're incredibly agreeable and they're incredibly argumentative and they're incredibly liberal and open to ideas. And at the same time, they also tend to be closed minded about that. There's benefits to why the status quo is where it is. And so there's, and they have a future orientation of focusing on where the world and we sh- where the world's going and very present oriented where they really kind of had those flow states, full immersion in the loss of self-consciousness. And so it's very liberating to think that the creative person is incredibly messy and they don't, they really capture all these dialectics. They're, they're both ends of all these personality dimensions. And, and what that means is, is when you think of all the formal ways that we try to cultivate creativity that how we just do such a poor job. And so you've got these pod psychology people there. Let's make you more positive because when you're in a positive mindset, you're more open to new experiences. Well, you just got rid of all of that nuance I just told you about, which is they're also serious, somber, dutiful, and respectful of kind of the, of the history that led them to find ideas that haven't been treated well in the past. And if your goal is the school system to be obedient, well, I mean, we all know um, that this is this is the the way to have convergent thinkers that are the minions and the people on the conveyor belt and, and another brick in the walls Pink Floyd video as opposed to divergent thinkers which is I teach in a classroom twice a week I tell my students every single class I will appreciate you and only appreciate you if you disagree with me not if you agree with me I don't need to hear myself in different words when you disagree with me even if you're wrong. I give you points like the Olympics just for the difficulty level of like you're going up against the man. You're raging against the machine. That's where the benefit lies. You don't have to be right, but you need to learn to challenge the man, the woman who's at the helm. And in in this classroom, I happen to be at the helm. You're supposed to challenge the authors of the book you read. You're supposed to. That's where that's where that's where I reward people. And 
people usually say when they leave my class, it's my last class at George Mason University. It's the first time a teacher ever let me disagree with them and rewarded me for it. I don't know what to do with that as I leave college. Yeah, I took a similar tack when I taught philosophy as well. It's like, I don't want you to believe what I believe. And I don't want you to believe any particular thing. I want you to be able to like justify what you believe. And I want you to be able to look at what other people's believe and appreciate it and still yet disagree with it as an intelligent, rational person, right? It's not about agreement. It's not about a convergence. It's about justified divergence, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you think about, um, I mean, like going back to the conversation about the importance of culture, it's, it's not that I want someone that's from, has an Indian background, has a Pakistani background and has a Japanese background. It's that if you lived in Japan and the way you write your name and everything on a daily basis, there's with asymmetrical figures. Well, you just are going to think differently than me where every letter that I use is symmetrical. If that's, that's, if that's influencing your thinking, like what does that do when you think about human behavior? What does that do when you look at a parent picking up a kid and you think in asymmetrical terms versus symmetrical terms? I have no answers. I just know that I want someone Japanese around me because I'm trained in symmetry. That's beautiful. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of your, your work right now is on distress tolerance or what we might want to say resiliency, right? Um, to make it simpler, right? So what, what have you learned that we can, you know, as we start wrapping things up that people can take away um, to really start building their distress tolerance. Um, and so that they're not people who are shying away from either doing their best work or those uncomfortable situations or whatever might come up so they can really, um, you know, I'm going back to your book, the upside of your dark side, the, the, the beauty, and I'll, I'll put it on the board here. Cause Todd and I have mind share on it. The beauty of going into the, the personality basement and going into the dark side is that there are ways in which going there allows you to leverage and harness what's there rather than always run from it and be this like half of a person that can't fuel that. So what um, tips, tricks, or just general things to think about as far as this tolerance can you share with us? Sure. And I'll, and I'll, I'll take this as a thread through many different conversations we just had talking about evolution and talking about thinking of the neck down as opposed to just the neck up of our bodies are not just something we drag around with us and talking about culture. I mean, one of the important lessons I think is, is creating a mindset for yourself and also a culture when you think about the workplace or even your household, where if people are going to challenge whether your own thoughts, someone else's thoughts, or the system, come from a place of curiosity and not criticality. So that's like a, that would be my first lesson. This is, this is very simple, which is that if someone ends up, so let's just say the conversation we had about that, um, this study about women in the third trimester, people will just say, well, that's just hormones and I, that, that's, that doesn't make any sense. And plus, I'm a man. So what does that have to do with me? Now, that's a, that's a critical response. You're challenging the research, which is fine, but I would say stop. Ask me something from a place of curiosity. What do you want to know that I didn't provide about that study? So all of a sudden you can ask, what relevance does this have to me being a man? Now, think of the difference of how that conversation is going to go from the place of curiosity as opposed to trying to show that I'm wrong because you don't get pregnant and this has no relevance to you. So I, I make this a clear um, way of training people to make this built into the culture. 
boardrooms, every meeting, brainstorming sessions, two people working on a book together, writing a blog post and challenging that inner critic that's saying, you know, like, listen, you, you don't know enough about technology and with your philosophy background, you're going out of your, you're going out of your wheelhouse. Well, from a place of curiosity, why would I be of use in this area is a way of challenging in a curious way, your own thoughts. That's one curiosity of a criticality. Um, the second one I think, which is important is following along with that is if you want to persuade other people, think about right now, we're in the midst of a sort of presidential election thing happening right now. So you got a lot of people arguing because you're going to start seeing signs of different people on people's lawns. You're not, if you want to change someone's views on a real strong philosophical or political issue or moral issue, let's just say, to make it even broader. Now we bring in kind of being a good citizen at work or being a bad citizen at work. Moral behavior. The way to do this is not to ask them, where did they get these ideas? Where, where, where did you develop this moral view? That's kind of, uh, that's not going to do anything. That's just going to give you an, they're going to provide their autobiography and it's going to go nowhere. It's going to be unhelpful. It's not going to help. It's not going to help if you ask them, um, uh, why their idea is better than yours, because now you're creating friction. So you don't ask about the origin. You don't ask about why is one better than the other. You simply ask, why is this important to you, this topic in your way? And in this way, you're open. And the idea is you're not committed to agree with them. You are not you are not committed to having a positive conversation. You are committing yourself to listening, to listening to what this person says and not challenge what comes next. So just by simply ask this question regularly, like why is that important to you? With an openness, you can start to persuade people. Because people, if people do have, as, as you were talking before, if, if people have good rationale for their beliefs, they'll have to describe them. Um, if they don't, they'll be unpersuading themselves. This is like psychological jujitsu. And that's because you're not going to persuade them, but they might be unpersuaded. of like, you know what? I don't know why this is important to me. And that will be ironically the most persuasive way that you can deal with someone who's on the other divide of you of a moral topic. So that's the, that would be my second thing of just, you know, the, why is that important to you question when you're kind of have a, a moral you're on two sides of a moral issue. Um, the third one would be is start to really notice and be able to get better at labeling your emotions. And this is something I've been studying for a number of years. And, and on my website, I, I give away all the research for free. It's all on there, which is that it's this very unusual thing. When, you're, when we get stressed out, and all of us do, we're all overwhelmed and we're all overstressed. On Friday kicks in, we, and someone asks us, like, how's the week for you? When you use words that such as, I feel upset, I feel pissed, I feel bad, I feel stressed, all of these globular blanket terms, when you describe your world in that globular way, you end up being less able to cope with, the, with whatever stressors that you're facing. And when you're able to, as an alternative, don't, so avoid the word bad, stressed, upset, pissed. Those are uninformative terms. And describe the exact emotions you're feeling. If you say, I feel a little bit guilty, not, no sadness, no anger, and a little bit of anxiety and worry, 
Now all of a sudden you can get a finger hold and a foothold into like, okay, this is communicating something. This means that there's some threat you believe is the coming in the future and that you're worried right now about that. So now I know like, okay, is it about resources? Do I need people on, do I need allies? Do I need people on my side? Um, do I not have the problem solving skills? Have I not done enough research? I can get a foothold in there. Um, and if, and what happens is when you can describe in precise terms what you're feeling, when you're in pain, you have more space to find all the tools that are in your arsenal to bring them into the situation. So be more precise in describing your emotional experiences. That's a great one. I want to throw out um, Nonviolent Communications is a great book for this because it's got like two pages. It has a whole bunch of very precise like emotions and things like that. Cause part of the methodology is to have you state what you're actually feeling. And I grew up where I had like the, the eight, you know, the eight crayon box of emotions. It was like pissed, mad, right? <laughs> pissed, frustrated, sad, upset. And I couldn't, I didn't have the nuance there, but nonviolent communication was a really, really good book for that because it gives a bunch of pages of really specific emotions that then you can actually have great conversations as Todd's mentioning. Well, that's, that's actually the second time I've heard you recommend that book. So that is now, that's, that's all I need for to go into the Amazon wish list. Fantastic. All right. So three tips is one, um, curiosity over criticality. Two, um, that I'm labeling um, commit to listening rather than commit to challenging. Yeah. Uh, and persu- yeah, ne- yeah. Persuade people, negotiate by asking why is something important to them. Ask why is something important. And then third, be precise about the emotions that you're feeling it in when you're describing your emotional state. Yep. When you're stressed and upset. Yep. Alrighty. Um, having done some of those, I can say that that's a great place to start and it's plenty of homework. So I appreciate you giving those. Um, you giving us two bits of homework now, man. It's like we're talking to a college professor or something. I, I was just going to say, that's what happens when you bring professors on board. We're not fun company. You're a fantastic company, Todd, and I appreciate you um, carving some of your time from your twins and your research and, and, you know, your life in general to hang out with us on the show again today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I am a fan of the show, so it's nice to be on the other side. Thanks. Okay, Creative Giants, what can you do today besides what, you know, Professor Todd has already shared with you to grow your distress tolerance and really go into um, the basements of your personality um, and your limitations and, and leverage those to do your best work and thrive? Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for Creative Giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.